conspiratorial, crazy. It's not a deal breaker for the rest of Republicans. They sort of shrug now and go, yeah, we guess I guess we have to have those guys during our coalition. And I think that is a really deadly kind of, of decision for the GOP to have made, but it's one that, that quite clearly they are comfortable with at some level. Rick, my last question before I let you go, given the growing distrust in the political institutions, are you concerned about political uprises or violent uprises before or after the next election? And as we have seen already in America, a rise in political violence on the right, and that political violence took a toll on January 6th. It, 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 it actually happened again yesterday when an armed gunman attacked an FBI office in Ohio. Why? Because he was told by the entire right-wing propaganda machine that the country is under attack, that Trump is under attack, and they have to take immediate steps. I am deeply concerned about the rise of political violence in the U.S. And, and, and any time a, a political system becomes inflected with the option of using violence to achieve a political end, it is profoundly unstable, profoundly dangerous, and cannot be called a republic or a, demo or a democratic republic in any context. It is, increasingly, it is increasingly relevant to the lives of American people that the mob on the side of the Trump equation is using the rhetoric of violence, they are stepping up the threats of violence, and we are seeing increasing acts of violence. This is a spectrum we need to find a way to check and stop as quickly as we can. It is a deep concern to me and many others. And what can be done? Look, you have to raise the stakes in America of, of being in that nationalist, populist, pro-violence cohort. You have to make them unelectable. You have to find ways to tell people that if they, if they think they're electing a Republican because that's what they've been all their lives, they need to look more closely at who those people are now. I often analogize the today's Republican Party to like those creatures that parasites in the jungle will, will, will take over its brain and eat it from the inside out. That's what's happened to the GOP. And people who still sort of have a vestigial alliance or allegiance to the Republican Party are not voting for the Republican Party of George Bush or Ronald Reagan or, or, or Eisenhower um, or Teddy Roosevelt. They're voting for a Republican Party that is profoundly different than that and is engaged in again, conspiracy, cruelty, craziness, violence, at a level that we've never seen in the U.S. before. Okay, so that was uh, uh, Rick Wilson, Lincoln Project, and um, this is the uh, American Soundoff. Thank you so much for listening. And I have some, theory, some things to say about what he had to say, but we'll save that for the next episode. Thank you so much. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 11 a.m. 90.7 FM. Listen sponsored. Now become a member now. Become a member not only because everything you hear is straight, everything you hear is the late, everything here is great, but we also want you to become a member because we want you to get in there and put your shoulders next to the wall like we're doing. Help pay some of them electric bills, some of our toilet papers, our napkins, our portable plates knives and forks. But better than that, even for the staff, the guys that are working hard here at KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. And this is Screaming Jay Hawkins telling you why you got to do it. You got to do it not because it's an order, not because it's mandatory, not because it's a must, 
but because this is the only place where you're hearing the right stuff. You're hearing the truth, you're hearing the good sound, and you're digging people who knows what it's all about. So pick up on a few things and lay down some of them other things and just dig KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. And remember, I said so. I, Screaming Jay Walkin. I ain't walking, I'm talking. I'm squawking. Become a member now. Become a member of KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your dial. I'm about to sign off. Bye, 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 bye. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. The Montevillage Jazz Festival, now in its ninth year, happens Friday, August 19th through Sunday, August 21st. Montevillage Jazz supports community building and enriches local culture by showcasing original music made right here in Portland. More festival information can be found at montevillejazz.org. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website, kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend meetings are available on the website. The Finance Committee will meet on Thursday, August 18th at 5.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being Greetings. Held. I'm Ansel Craigland. And I'm Winston Watson. And I'm Donna Clark. And we are the Meditation. We are listening to Community Radio. KBOO. 90.7 FM. Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Dig it. <laughs> Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 90.7 FM Public Radio. Interviews about books with the people who write them. I'm your host, Avi Mar. Jonathan Evison is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels All About Lulu, West of Here, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, This Is Your Life, Harriet Chance, and Lawn Boy. His newest is the sprawling epic novel, Small World. He is the recipient of the Washington State Award, the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association Award, the Hudson Booksellers Award, and the Richard Buckley Fellowship from the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. His novels have occupied multiple best-of lists. 
His work, often distinguished by its emotional resonance and offbeat humor, has been compared to Salinger, T.C. Boyle, and John Irving. He has twice been nominated by the American Book Association as most engaging author. The New York Times calls his work a welcome departure from self-conscious MFA-funded prose. The Washington Post states, Evison takes a battering ram to stereotypes about race and class. About his latest, Small World, the New York Times said, the novel is ambitious, showing our interconnectedness across time, place, and cultures. In his teens, Evison was the founding member and frontman of the Seattle punk band March of Crimes. He now lives on an island in Western Washington. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jonathan Evison. So you moved to Bainbridge when you were eight years old with your mother and siblings. How do you think where you grew up influenced you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It, it really shaped me in, in a lot of different ways, uh, particularly, I think, because I grew up in a pretty much a, a, an intact family in a working class neighborhood in Santa Clara. And then when my sister died, my parents broke up, my family sort of exploded. And my dad, my dad had then he had moved us to Bainbridge Island, which was I don't know why he chose it. It was kind of an affluent community and we were anything but affluent. And so I was like, you know, raised by a single mom in a, in a kind of a affluent, and, and I, I think I really got it. I think I kind of became class conscious at that point because a lot mm -hmm. of my friends had um, money and in an early age, I started to notice the differences between the way people with money uh, taught their kids and socialized their kids versus people who didn't have money. Like, you know, I was taught that the world was made of meat and to expect the worst because life was just one big Kodiak boot in the teeth after another. And, um, you know, I had friends who were taught, you know, um, destiny is a ladder and all you have to do is climb it and to value yourself. It took me a long time to learn that lesson. Like I use an example of lawn mowing because, you know, Lawn Boy, my book Lawn Boy kind of deals with this class divide. And, and like, so m my business model as a kid was under, you know, underbid all the, uh, you know, underbid all the competitors. So, you know, I would come home and say, hey, uh, I'm gonna mow Mrs. Austinson's lawn for uh, 10 bucks. And, you know, my my mom would be like, well, don't you think that's too much? I mean, why, why not 750, you know what I mean? You know, and, <clears throat> and I realized that these other kids would go home and say, I'm gonna mow Mr. Austinson's lawn for $10. And their parents would say, well, that's an awful big lawn. You know, maybe you should ask for $15. And, you know, they'd get the $15. It took me, you know, I was in well into my 30s before I really registered that message. But looking back, I mean, I think it was very, uh, I think growing up that way has really shaped how I view American society in a big way. That's what, one of the things I love about your work is the way your voice is so authentic around sort of wealth disparity and how it operates in most of the relationships that you're talking, that you talk about. And I had such a problem with money that I think it kept me for until, until I was like 39 years old before I could make any. I was like, yeah. I, I, I had a real issue with money, a real ax to grind with capitalism. And I think it kept me from, I had to finally just accept that money isn't the end all, money's just a tool and money's okay, it's not inherently evil itself, or you know what I mean? Until yeah. I learned to value myself or whatever and like finally be able to accumulate enough to not be living paycheck to paycheck. So just to move, stay with that, um, where you were growing up, you credit your third grade teacher with making you a writer. And I wanted to ask you about that. Can you tell us about you as a third grader? I have to start at kindergarten to tell this story because I, I was uh, when I started kindergarten, I was right on the edge of the deadline. 
And so my parents, my mom had, you know, she had four kids, two teenagers, and she just needed me out of the house. So I actually started, instead of redshirting me, like I did my kids, she put me in and I was the youngest kid in class. But then they ended up, um, I ended up skipping second grade because, um, you know, I performed well. I was, you know, whatever. I, I did I did fine. This is when my dad was still alive and we were still a stable family. And, and, and after they skipped me, that's when everything sort of blew up and my dad moved us up here and then he left. And um, so what my mom decided to do was uh, she didn't want me to have social problems. She had me redo third grade just so I wouldn't be two years younger anymore to help make my transition early, easier. And at this point, there's just the outside forces of the world were really... You know, I was kind of an at-risk kid at this point, and 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 add to that that I had already had the curriculum. Now, you know, I mean, we're doing dinosaurs and penmanship and all this stuff I'd already done, and so I was distracted. I wasn't uh, I wasn't engaged in the classwork. I was uh, I'm hypomanic, so you know, luckily they didn't put me on Ritalin or something like that. You know, I was swinging from the rafters, but my 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 third grade teacher, Mrs. Hanford, God love her, she she saw something in me, and she knew that I liked to write. So she would just let me sit in a corner by myself and not do the schoolwork and just write whatever I wanted. And, and in doing that, she accomplished one of her major goals, which was to keep me from poisoning the herd, right? I was such a distraction to the classroom, but she also made a writer out of me. I think that was, that's why I wrote, I mean, I, I started writing in third grade. I, 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 you know, it was my, my form of escapism and to deal with my biochemistry, you know, focus is really hard and it's what I yearn for and what I need to keep me grounded and writing has always done that yeah. and so she nurtured that in me and I wrote a children's book that she, she 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 got me hooked up with something called the Young Authors Conference and in uh, that was sponsored by I think Seattle Pacific University and they actually published my children's book it was called The King Without a Crown in fourth grade because of her of course that was the last thing I published for like 30 years the rest of that and then it was like seven unpublished novels and in my teens, I had a fanzine, a punk fanzine yeah. that uh, I wrote everything. It was record reviews, show reviews, goofy little editorials, band interviews. And I would make like a hundred copies of this thing. And, and I would, I would distribute it from the punk record stores and the skate shops and stuff. And that thing would make it all over the world. You know, people That's would awesome. copy it and pirate. I would get letters from like, uh, you know, like Iceland and, 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 uh, uh, Alaska. It was always from like isolated places. I wasn't getting letters from New York and Chicago. It was always from these isolated locations where the kids were so hungry for it. They so, they so needed it. You know what I mean? So I've been writing my whole life and it's because that in games, I was an athlete growing up. That in games, the only thing that really keep me and being with my kids, being present with my kids, those are the things that, that give me the focus I need. It really was never about, I was never really careerist about it. You know, I wrote seven books before anyone published. So, so you use the word, you use the word hypomanic and, and you use a lot in interviews, you say biomanic. And I, I've never heard you um, define that completely so that I can understand it, but I hear what you're saying now about, um, I need external like, things to keep me focused and writing is the best one and you were saying games so can you talk about how that's how that's informed your life well yeah I didn't even know what it was I mean I just intuitively understood what it was then I, I, I had seen a therapist sometime in my 30s or something who was the first one to sort of diagnose me as manic one or manic two whichever whichever one doesn't get depressed I'm that one. Like I never get depressed, but I'm always up. You can see, I just talk real fast. I slept like five hours last night. I sleep like five hours a night. I have three kids. I'm, I'm, 
extremely productive. I've already got my next two books done and an original yeah. screenplay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a machine, you know what I mean? And I'm kind of a, it's like a tiger by the tail situation. It's a blessing or a curse. And for me, it's a blessing because I've found my, I've found my ways to manage it. Like I, I've never been medicated. I self-medicate, you know, I smoke a lot of weed. I, I drink a ton of beer. I, I walk like six miles a day. I just, the, the whole goal is always to sort of wear myself out so I can achieve some sort of calmness. Uh, um, so that's uh, what I mean by, by biomania. But that's just something I always lived with. It wasn't until I was, like I said, well into my 30s that anyone ever said, I mean, I, I was talking to this guy for like three minutes and he's like, dude, you're off the charts, man. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, and so I, I don't think the diagnosis really changed anything for me, except that it made me, I mean, I already knew, but yeah. now I had some kind of name for it or whatever. Uh-huh. And I really realized the importance of, of, of managing it because I had other friends along the line who have um, gone the medic- medication route and it hasn't worked well. You know, I've heard just nothing but nightmares about uh, medication. So for me, it's I manage it with the work, I manage it with the exercise, and I manage it with, uh, you know, recreational drugs and alcohol. <laughs> but I've been doing it for 40 years and my liver count's still good, so. Has it changed how it operates in you and your writing life over time? Well, like I said, it makes me super productive as long as I focus it. And, you know, where I've gotten better over the years, like I've written 17 books now, I'm getting better at achieving that focus and and, and, and designing ways to get into this sort of flow state that makes me most productive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is just, uh, a lot of that relies on what I learned as an athlete too, is just trusting the process and, uh, and, and, and creating an environment where I can get into that state. And by trusting the process, I mean just doing the work. You know, nobody wants to run stairs at 4.30 a.m. on a rainy day. Yeah. So I'm not going to depend on inspiration. Like, I don't just feel like writing today. I, I don't feel inspired. I just get in there and do it and trust that once I start doing it, I will achieve that flow state, you know? I mean, a big part of the challenge, obviously, is uh, just, just getting out of my own way, you know? Once I get out of my own way, this is really more of an exercise in unconscious and subconscious and uh, imagination, you know? Can I ask a question? Sure. So one question would be when I'm kind of feeling my way into what that must be like for you, does it show up as like massive productivity, like where someone else would do 20 pages and they keep half of them? do you just have a much higher productivity and then you still come down to 10 pages later? Or, I mean, I love what you're saying about a flow state because that sounds totally different than what I was imagining. Yeah, well, definitely. I'm really, like I said, I've, I've already got my next two novels and a feature screenplay done. And the paperback of my current book hasn't even come out yet. So, and and I, I don't mean that, and that's not, I don't want that to sound like hubris. That's like, you know, I mean, the sad fact is this is how I got to do to manage. I'm hard to live with otherwise. My goal is to be the best dad I can be, the best friend I can be, the most expensive person I can be without the work. I mean, two weeks without the work and my wife is like, you gotta go work. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I I like, I just become, it's harder for me to be there. You know, I'm just, I'm kind of absent. When the work is gone, it's like, you know, it's just hard for me to stay grounded. And uh, so like looking around my garage, this is great radio, right? Nobody can see it, but you can see my background. You see, I got a shuffleboard table and there's a ping pong table and a pool table and a, you know, dartboard. These yeah. games are another another way I really focus. But I, I think about it really seriously because how we you work with mood, 
and what's coming through you? I think it's a beautiful question actually, because this is really personal stuff is how do you get connected in with your subconscious to bring your work forward? And the, the, the question just to come back to it, what I was asking was like, you know, how do you, how do you wrestle with it in particular? Cause for some people, I think they just produce so much work that they throw 90% away and they keep 10%. That's what I was kind of asking you is, do you think it's different for you than like somebody like Willie? You know what I mean? Like, do you think you produce more because of that energy and focus inside of you or not? I absolutely do. And I'm throwing away less and less work because I've devised tools and a uh, process that allows me not to write myself into as many corners. I used to, um, the key to all of this is just getting out of my own way, right? Yeah. Getting out of my problems, not thinking about anything else, the bills, anything, just literally just getting out of my own way. And that comes with preparation and uh, you know, getting game ready. Cause I, I do most of my writing in three days a week. And so the other four days I a week, that. I'm getting mentally ready. Like a, like a football player does for Sunday. Like when I, when that, when, when the whistle blows on Sunday at 10 AM, I'm, I'm in the game, I'm ready. So I prepare myself for that all week. I yeah. used to be somebody who got inside the work and just sort of groped around. And uh, you know, I would write myself in the corners and say that didn't work. And I'd have to go back and re reverse engineer it. And, yeah. Now I do a lot more outlining. Um, I um, end up at the same place. You know, I find that I pretty much, I think I end up at the same place, but it saves me time. It just makes me more efficient writer. Um, sometimes I miss just getting lost in it. Yeah. And not that it still doesn't happen. And I don't outline like scene for scene or anything like that. I just, I, what I outline is my, uh, my vision of the thing or my, uh, you know, you know, what I'm trying to achieve. You know yeah. what I mean? And that can look in a lot of different ways. It's not like I'm writing out each set piece or anything like that. It's like, what do I need to achieve with this theme? What is the over overarching theme of this book? What, what, what am I trying to get at? Why am I writing this book? And so if I prepare myself that way, I find that I don't, um, I've thrown away whole novels. I, I'm hoping that never happens again, because yeah. I, I think that I've, I've taught myself some, some ways to make sure the center holds before I get lost in something. I mean, that's one of the things that I love, you know, when I think about your writing is you're talking about this kind of productivity and pressure from inside and all that, but you you manage and braid together so many complex things at the same time. I, I'm amazed by just the level of focus, just from small world, like all of those characters that you braid together in these different ways of connectivity, you know, that's so focused. So it makes sense to me what you're saying about you're easier on yourself by having some outline about where you want to go when you hit the chair. Well, that book in particular was like the perfect antidote to my craziness because I have all this different stuff going on me and, 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 and allowing me to multitask like that yeah. and, 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 and somehow achieve a, a fluid state where I didn't write, I wrote that book organically. I didn't write one line, then another. And then, you know, I braided in together in real time as they went along, because I knew if I did it the other way, I'd miss connections. You know, I'd miss the opportunity for connection. So that one was perfect for me because I, I don't think I've ever gotten out of my way as effectively. That book has the least of me in it. I think some of my books, you'll read me and my friends will say, I hear your voice. You know, when I read the revised fundamentals of caregiving or Lomboy or all about Lulu, and with that book, you know, the voice is largely Victorian for the historical parts and the, 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 the modern parts are, um, 
they're maybe not as humorous as I usually uh, do and, and things like that. There was the least of me in it. So I was, I think the most out of my way I've ever been. And so I think it allowed me to, uh, to execute at a really high level, like that maybe I'd never achieved before. I mean, I, I like, I've, I've written things I've liked as much before, but I don't know that I've written anything where I was executing, like where I really felt like I was firing on all cylinders and the book was mm -hmm. writing itself. I got snowed up, snowed in up here for 10 days all by myself. And I ended up writing 140 pages, which was like, you know, 20% of that novel. And that's when I really hit my stride. Once I, once that happened, then the whole book, I mean, the whole book was like 14 months or something, including the research. And it's because I hit that, that flow state where it was like, I was completely out of my own way. And whenever I picked it back up, I just got right in. Whereas, you know, 15 years ago, I'd probably, you know, screw around. Uh, on, on social networks or just try to, you know, writers often, you know, it's hard to give up yourself, I think, is the thing. I mean, and when you're going to give yourself to the thing itself, give yourself to the narrative, and you have three kids, for instance, you don't get a lot of me time, you know? Sometimes I don't get a shower for four days, you know? And so I get out here to the cabin, it's peaceful, I'm up in the mountains, it's not always the easiest thing to just get right into the story and not enjoy my surroundings, but I've taught myself how to do that. I mean, that's the more I think about it, just the key to all of it for me is just getting the hell out of my own way. Because mm -hmm. there's so much like, you know, you just listen to me. The other thing is I hate myself. Like this guy, the one you're talking to, I have so, I just can't stand myself. I never go back and listen to interviews because I'm like, God, you just sound like a maniac. You can't, you're skipping transitions. You're all over the place. But I love myself on the page. But you know? that's a really nice point you're making. That sort of was my next question is you're, you're, you have these two, sort of very vocal ways like the first part which is very self-critical and I don't like the sound of my own voice and the way my mind works and you have that sort of commentary on yourself but on the other side one of the really inspiring things about you is I'm going to read a quote I heard from you because you also say you're really thick-skinned right you said no matter what if nobody ever published any of my work and I died in complete obscurity surrounded by feral cats I'd be writing novels until the end so you have this combination of self-criticism on the one hand, but on the other hand, nobody stops you by hurting your feelings. Or I think it's a really cool thing. That was my next question was, how do those two operate in you at the same time? Because on the one hand, you have this quality that a lot of people get really wounded and give up on their writing, but you have this really strong you're not going to be taken down from what you're doing that you've said has been there for a long time, right? Right. And it's because I need it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have to do this. So I've already accepted that. I mean, this is my medication and not in a sort of like, I have to talk about, uh, you know, my broken heart in this sort of sentimental poetry way. Like this is my therapy. It's just the focus. Like I said, without that focus, I'm probably honestly like an IV drug user or something or seeking some kind of entropy or some way to, yeah. You know, yeah. and so that makes it really easy. One thing I always tell, like, I've, I'm full of uh, self, you know, I'm full of, you know, I don't lack confidence, okay? I may not like myself, but I never lack confidence because I'm always trying to explain this to, to young writers that I mentor and stuff is like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't get bogged down in, in, in insecurity or like imposter syndrome or anything like that. 
the whole the whole process of writing a novel is an act of conceit in itself and you have to be confident when you do it it's like uh it's like using a chainsaw you have to be confident when you use a chainsaw you're gonna lop a limb off you know you can't be scared and that's how i feel about the narrative so i never lack confidence if it's crap i'm just i'll be the first one to see it and it's crap and uh i'm always surprised at some writers that are have been at it as long as me you know will say hey you want to switch manuscripts and i'll give you feedback and i'm already like bring it on you know do not hold your punches pull them because i want to i mean i'm trying to make this thing better if i don't agree with your saying it'll just i'll be gracious and i won't listen but when you say something that is going to help me achieve my goal i'm going to listen but some people are just so still so thin-skinned about it they're like that i can't really give them the feedback they probably need because they're just like immediately like defensive about it or like oh well i did that because uh you know stuff I recognized in myself when I was 21, you know, like somebody would say, well, I don't know about this. And I go, oh, I did that on purpose. Or, well, you don't understand. Or, you know, I don't, I love editorial. It's just, you, you need to know how to use it as a tool. You can't, uh, yeah. you can't let whoever your editor or your reader is co-opt your vision. You have to know. I tell people don't ever share the work and, and I share the work tons, but I know what I'm doing before I ever yeah. start. That's yeah. the thing. You have to know what you're trying to achieve. Otherwise, you're going to get a million different opinions about it, and you're going to be lost. And you need to be able to 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 filter those and say, "This is what I this helps me get to what I'm trying to achieve." Because the work itself is the best of me. Like I was saying earlier, like as much as I hate my just all over the place, like public persona, or like I on the page, I get to control it and curate it and. you know what I mean? I get to make, I get yeah, to shape well, it into the best part of me. So like the books mean a lot to me because I really think they're the best they can do. I think they're, they're the, ver- the very best of me. Yeah. And I think you're making a really great point that this is part of how you operate is you regulate you by writing. And so your most calm, centered, you know, um, thoughtful you is out on the page. And so no wonder it's it's part of your favorite way of kind of putting yourself in the world. Yeah, that and parenting has been huge too, you know. I don't, I, you know, like all parents, I lose my cool sometimes, uh, but I really, I wanted to be everything my parents were unable to be for me kind of thing. Yeah. Not that I begrudge them, they just had their hands full. I also have my hands full, but I, I, I wanna be very present at all times with them. And sometimes that looks different. I mean, sometimes that means when you're walking your two-year-old across a huge parking lot, you just got to walk really slowly, not try to hurry them along. You just got to, you know, kind of stand on it. Like, I'm going to enjoy this. She's holding my finger. We're just going to walk. It's going to take us eight minutes to get across the Safeway parking lot, but we're going to get there. (laughs) When that's happening, when that's happening, everything feels right, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. I try to use everything I possibly can to to get to that place where, you know, I'm present. Yeah. So when you're writing, um, does it come to you as like a visual and you're writing down what you're, when you're sort of writing a scene or do you feel like you're inventing uh, events that happen? I'm just trying to get a picture of your, when you're focused and in the flow and you're, writing for eight, eight, eight or 16 hours. I mean, when I'm hitting on all cylinders, it's almost yeah. more like taking dictation. I mean, I, I guess visual would be the way I put it. 
it's like there's a a, a movie in my head um and i'm just writing it down i'm just yeah, trusting yeah. it you know what yeah. i mean I, I, yeah. it doesn't i don't in the language at this point like i'm not somebody who works my sentences really hard Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can write luminous prose when they're called for, I guess, but mostly I, it's the words are just there to serve the story. And um, at this point, I've written so many of them that I don't really think about it. I'm not really shaping my sentences. Sometimes I'll go back through in a draft, but I really don't work the sentences that much. Yeah. The main thing is I want it to just swing. And so I just basically it's just I got this picture in my head and I'm just the words are there for me. I have instant yeah. access to them because I'm used and there was a time you know 20 years ago I had to think about a word or go to the thesaurus the now most of the words I use are there most of the, the verbal facility is developed to the point where I don't really have to think about it so much yeah. so I don't feel like I'm being that crafty while I'm doing it you yeah. know I don't I don't want you know saying what's happening I'm just not even there, you know? I mean, in the in a perfect world, I'm just not even aware and hours are going by and I'm stacking up pages. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a blessing. It feels really you know, good. I'd, I'd be a junkie or dead by now if I didn't have it. And that's the honest, that's the honest to God truth. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying about it. You really do use it to regulate your whole mind and your whole body, it sounds like, is just to let that flow. Yeah, because I go to zero to 50 so fast. You know what I mean? That's why, you know, I had to train myself not to, you know, as a parent, not to just explode, you know, star breaths, yeah. take a deep breath here. Don't, you know, don't start yelling at the kids. Don't parent from three rooms away kind of thing. Get down on their level, like be present. And uh, yeah, because I can go from zero to 50 so fast. Like yeah. this morning before, before we got on the phone, I woke up, I was like a zombie. I was like, I don't know. I got too much REM sleep or something last night. And yeah. I'm drinking coffee and I'm like, God, what is wrong? I mean, I'm not hung over or anything like that. And, and then once we started yapping, now I, you know, now I can't slow down. <laughs> well, you know, it's another really beautiful thing about it is, is really what you're saying is love is what pulls you, you know, love focuses you, what, you know, you love what you do and you're, then you're around your, your sweet kids that you love so much. And that like pulls you forward. It's actually a really lovely thing to hear about. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that sounds like a simplified version of it in a weird way, but that's really what it comes down to. That's when we're all at our best, I think. Yeah. But I appreciate what you're saying about you're really like, I, I hear your gratitude for finding a way to do that that wasn't destructive, that it was that it was because of what you love. And so you stayed on this side of things with us. Yeah, and yet there's still a destructive element to it. I mean, I, I'm not that good to my body with all the, you know, I'm not like drunk daddy or anything. My kids don't even, you know, I metabolize alcohol so fast. Like I could drink like 10 beers and I'm not slurring, you know, it's just, I metabolize really fast, oh, really? but it gets me to a place where I'm a little more patient, slows me down a little bit, but like I was thrilled when I got all these blood panels done. My liver count was good. I'm like, Woo! I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was kind of like, here it comes. I finally got to find a new way to manage this, you know, and, and uh, now, oh, you look good. Glucose good. Liver counts good. It's still your way of regulating that um, is working really well. And, you're, you know, of course, your beautiful writing shows it. I'm just learning each time, too. Like, I don't, every book I try to, every book I'm trying to push myself to some, to, 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 to develop new tools. You know, I want to play in a high stakes game. 
you know, I don't, I don't want to win 21 to three, you know, I want to win 21, 19, or even lose 21, 19. I want to play in a high stakes game. And, and the best way to do that is to try something I've never done. And, mm. and that was a challenge after small world because there was, you know, so many points of view and it, you know, it was pretty ambitious in it's, uh, execution, but I found a way to do something that I've never done. That was, I think even formally more challenging than that. After that book where I challenged myself so hard, I had to find a new way to challenge myself even harder and try something I'd never tried before, but in a different way. I didn't want to write another small world that just had a ton of like another huge cast with a bifurcated timeline. I had to find a new way to, to write a narrative that would challenge me and force me to develop tools that I didn't have yet and stuff like that. And I found one and that's exciting. Now I have to figure out a way to do it with the next book. So I see what you're saying. So part of what you're saying is another thing that's important to you as a writer is, is you're sort of a, this might be the wrong way to say it, but you like the thrill seeking, thrill seeking part of, I need to do a next challenge. Okay. I did that. I need, I need to climb something higher now. That's what I'm hearing also really drives you is to find a new, um, a new mountain to climb and how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I've always valued range in a writer. I always wanted to be a writer with a lot of range. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of my favorite writers really didn't have a lot of range. I love Kurt Vonnegut. He, I'm, you know, he helped form my worldview, but I mean, I'm, I'm not ready to say that I thought he had a great range. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Necessarily a huge range. The voice was always kind of the same, the quirky, you know, I want to write books that, Somewhere in me, I think my readers recognize me each time, but like they're always kind of surprised, you know, or I want them to be surprised that this is going in maybe a different direction they thought, or this is showing some elements that I wasn't prepared for or I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And at some point I'm going to repeat myself, you know, you write a lot of books and you're going to repeat yourself. So it's not always like that clearly, but like at least at some point in every book I want I want to, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying show off my range, but I want to develop it for, for, for my reader, but also for myself, just like you said, because of the challenge. Mm -hmm. I, I think when something becomes challenge, you know, when it ceases to be challenging, then, you know, and you keep doing it, it's just going to become a little boring. And then if that happens, then I'm not so sure it's going to help me manage my best self anymore mm -hmm. yeah, because I'm not, I'm going to be, I could start phoning it in at that point. Right, but it sounds like where some people might think you know, a challenge would be a certain kind of writing about a certain subject would be challenging. What I hear you saying is it's actually like the nuts and bolts, the mechanics of the narrative mechanism. You like to muck around with that and try to go to a new place with that, with the structure. Right, for me, it's all in exactly. It's more about the telling of the story. I mean, look, I only really have a couple of themes, you know? I mean, it's not thematically, it's all about connection, human connection. And the necessity of human connection, and and then you know maybe like some sub themes like masculinity and crisis, things like that. I really deal with a lot of the same themes over and over. For me, it's all in the telling of the story. You know, I mean, there's an endless, there's endless ways to tell the story, and to me, that's what's interesting because writing a story to me is like telling a joke. I mean, it's like in a simplified version, a joke is like a narrative, in that like. The idea is to create an expectation in your listener or your audience and then undermine that expectation in a way that is at once surprising and inevitable. And that's why we laugh because we recognize, but we weren't expecting it. 
And so that's what a narrative does for me. It's like this dance between the reader and writer where, you know, they're doing everything I'm doing backwards and heels. And so if I'm always aware of that, it becomes the best tool you have as a writer because then you can manage their expectations and sort of, you know, persuade them and start to use things like misdirect and red herrings and things that, you know, mystery writers and, you know, genre writers sort of understand a little better. Most, you know, a lot of literary fiction tends to be quieter and a little clunky narratively, whereas like the mystery writer understands misdirect and they understand, you know, so it's sort of fusing, using those tools, but in a, in a literary way, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. what I'm mm -hmm. that one. If you're just joining us, our guest is Jonathan Evison. This is KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland. Yeah, so when you were talking about small world, you used the phrase, I wanted to swing for the fences. And you're one of the people that talks really far away from your lived experience. Can you say how comfortable you are with writing far from your non-lived experience these days? Super comfortable. It's kind of the goal. I mean, I mean, I know the onus is on me to get it right. You know, I, I like to write, they say, write what you know. I say, use what you know, write outside your purview so you can grow. The whole goal for me is to try to become a more expansive person, to try to accue, accrue lived experience that I haven't actually lived. So, so uh, I don't want to stay in my own lane. I, I mean, the onus is on me not to hit any false notes and, uh, so, I mean, when I do write outside of my own purview, I, I find readers that will keep me honest. Like if I write about the combat veteran experience, yeah. I'm not just going to throw that out there without having one of my friends that actually did three tours in Iraq mm -hmm. vet it for me. You know what I mean? Because, you know, as a reader, if I hit one false note, I, I, I can lose you as a reader. So I like that challenge, too. Yeah. And, and I also kind of believe that, you know, what I'm really going for is this universal experience of being human human and that can look a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts is you know across gender lines across racial lines across socioeconomic lines and but beneath all that you know i'm trying to find that you know the, that universal experience mm -hmm. i feel like you know it's it's like whitman said we all contain multitudes you know what i mean i feel like that experience is that the ability to empathize, empathy is the big key, I guess, for me, is when I'm writing these things, I'm not, I'm not writing them from afar as some sort of um, social critique. I'm trying to get inside the experience itself. And for me, it, it was, say, writing Harriet Chance, writing an 80-year-old woman, did not feel, I mean, I'm just going to be honest, it didn't feel that different to me there's a lot of window dressing and a lot of contextualizing that has to happen. Like, how is this different? I mean, we just pick anything. I mean, how is it different for me to walk through a parking garage at 2am and, and, and a woman to walk through a parking garage at 2am given the culture we live in. And so, you know, I mean, it's like you have to calibrate all these things and take them into consideration when you're trying to write that experience. And then of course you have to have somebody tell you if you're getting it right. So book banning being on the rise in amount and intensity and Lawn Boy, um, that book ban was initiated by a mother at a school board meeting, right? Yeah, Leander, Texas. Yeah. So what was interesting to me, the question I wanted to ask 
about it was teenagers love your writing. And, and that's why these kind of parents are getting access to them. So I was wondering if is part of what's getting all these people jacked up is that you write about coming of age in an alternative, more expanded version of America where they are queer kids and there are class differences. And do you think that's part of what makes people so crazy about choosing your book is because it's so authentic? Yeah, I mean, I think below the, I mean, there's nothing in my book that kids aren't gonna find it in any, just you know, like a rated R movie or a Judd Apatow film or, I mean, God knows they can find much worse in terms of graphical content and things like that anywhere they want it. I think I'm trying to write about books that speak to experiences to people that don't aren't finding those experiences. And and so in trying to in trying to uh, banish these books, they're they're trying to in, in essence they're sort of robbing these people from having the stories that resonate with them because they would rather they would rather these people stay on the margins of society. I, I mean, I, I truly believe that they would just rather, you know, gay people stay on the margins, brown people stay on the margins. I think they don't like it because it empowers them. There's nothing particularly graphic about the book. I mean, any more than any literary novel, yeah. I don't think. I mean, I just think what they really, what really scares them about it is that it, it normalizes it somewhat and because it is normal and I don't know who they think they're protecting because guess what their teenage kids have gay friends and brown friends and you know I, I just it's 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 really just naked political posturing I think they these people just want to keep everything white Christian and you know cisgender like you know I I, I don't know I, I don't I, there's nothing pornographic about the book I know that you know I get I get these horrible you know weekly uh horrible hate letters from people calling me a groomer and and saying just awful things about my daughters like oh. that that i that uh, what have you done to your daughters i'll bet you touch your daughter oh. ethic i mean i'm like you know project much you're calling me a pedophile and you're you're painting this graphic figure of my daughters behind bushes and it's disgusting and these people have obviously never read the book they've uh you know they've They've conflated a sexual experimentation between a couple of 10 year olds that was innocent into uh, pedophilia, which it is by definition not. This is out there, it exists. So just thinking about Lawn Boy, one of the th things about your writing is that your characters go through so much, but one of the themes I find in your work is that all kinds of terrible things happen to your characters, but you seem to safeguard their essence in a way. Like Mike, in some way, some part of his innocence was protected in the way that you wrote him. And that really seems to be a theme in your writing, is that sort of empathic protection of a of coming of age moments in people's lives. Have you had that commentary before about your work? No, that's a really good input. I mean, it's been couched differently uh, as, I mean, I'm eternally optimistic. That's me at my centers. I'm eternally optimistic. It's funny you couched it in coming of age because I do the same thing with my 103-year-old uh, character in the last book I finished, uh, you know, and somebody even makes that comment about, you know, about their innocence despite their, despite their experience. Uh, 
that's what I've done for myself, I think, is to protect my innocence. I never wanted mm. to be a cynical person. I never wanted life to wear me down I, because you just see what happens. I mean, when you're a child, that's your fear of adulthood, you know, that adults become so serious and bogged down and lose their ability to, to laugh and celebrate. And they, they just become so burdened by experience. And I never wanted that to happen. I always wanted to be a blotter. I always want to be awake to life. And, uh, and you have to d definitely learn how to compartmentalize and, you know, you know, uh, build some whatever sort of bulwark necessary to, you know, short of being delusional. But I mean, that's important to me. I think that a lot of people give up a lot easier than some people. I think, I think it takes more strength and courage to remain optimistic than it does to become negative. I mean, mm. clearly, I mean, I think that's, a demonstrable truth. I think it's pretty easy to give up. Do it for the pure reason that I love to do it and that it serves its purpose for me and that it's part of my life gestalt and not get bitter about, oh, those New York publishers, they just want crap. They can't recognize my genius. Or You know what I mean? I hear that from young writers where they get bitter and I'm like, dude, you got to earn those stripes, buddy. You wrote like one or two failed novels. Go write seven. So I've heard you say over time that you write more and more as a reader. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit more, that you like to write as a reader. Um, can you say a little bit more about that or sort of at, maybe even use an example from Small World? Any way to illustrate what you're saying? For me, it comes back to, I think I touched on it earlier about uh, the reader being my greatest tool. I'm trying to give somebody a, a great ride like I know what I like as a reader and I'm trying to recreate that experience for my reader. So it's not a matter of trying to please the audience. You know, I don't do it because I'm trying to please the audience because really the audience is me just on the other end of this process. Yeah. But I know that I love to be active as a reader. I don't want to be, I don't want, I don't want everything to be spelled out for me. I'm not just along for the ride. I'm, I'm collaborating in the ride. And so more and more as I, as I mature as a novelist, I think the novels have sort of a puzzle-like element, which I guess you would call a little more plot-driven than character-driven. They're always character-driven at the end of the day. But I know that as a reader, I love to make connections. I love to have those aha moments. I love convergences of characters. I love when divergent parts of a narrative come together. I love these pleasures of, 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 of reading myself. And so I wanna recreate those for the reader. It's about entertainment as well as edification. You know what I mean? I want them to, um, I want them to just like I described how when I write the book, I want to accrue real experience that feels real or lived. Like, so the ultimate compliment is when you get a letter or a note or something for a reader. I, I remember I got one for All About Lulu where the reader was like, you know, I, I was, you know, I, you know, they were basically describing a scene in the book and they thought it was from their own life. And they were like, I was trying to figure out why was it those big dinosaurs in Cabo Zone and who the girl I was in love with and like, what was I doing here? Cause I didn't even live here. And then they realized it was the book, you know what I mean? And that, that's what I want to give them. I mean, that's the ultimate goal is to, to uh, for the reader or the writer is to feel like you have this lived experience that you didn't live to be more expansive than the purview of your own 80 years and your own, the trappings of self, you know what I mean? To be able to transcend that. 
And that's why the ultimate challenge for me is to write outside in my purview. Now I've had a lot of experience, I'm lucky, but I'm particularly lucky because I've had an incredibly dynamic group of friends over the, across all genders and races and sexual orientations and nationalities and experience and like, and I listen to them and, and I, you know, and I know them and I love them and I, 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 I soak up their, I soak up their experiences and their, uh, their, uh, you know, um, impressions of what it's like to be human. And, and, and I try to absorb those into my experience and, and, and do them justice. And so that's what I mean about the reader. I, 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 again, I just think it's the same thing. The readers on one end, it's like a conversation and the readers on one end and the writers on the other. And so nobody likes, you know, we all have acquaintances that don't have dialogues. They just have monologues or biologues, I call them, where it's like you say something and then they just counter with a similar story from their experience and you just go back and forth. And it can be kind of interesting, but it's not an active conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, when somebody tells me an interesting story, I like to come back with a question. I like to dig deeper into that experience. I don't just want to tell my story. Okay, my turn, now your turn. That's a dialogue. I want it to actually be a dialogue. And so the best way is to think about the reader and think about what information to view the story purely as information on some level. Like what does the reader know? What information have I given the reader and how can I undermine their expectations knowing what they know versus knowing what I know? Because you make the mistake as a writer, it's very easy because you know the off the, off the page backstory. You know all these things about your character that you have not shared with the reader. And so you have to keep track of what they know. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, it becomes so much more playful and so much funner for you as the writer and for the reader. It becomes a lived experience. It becomes, that's how you make it feel like real experience, I think, is to involve the reader rather yeah. than just yeah. presenting mm -hmm. to them. Oh, it makes perfect that's sense. That's why I, like, when I do speaking engagements, as much as I hate the way I just, blah, 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 you know what I mean? I, I, I can't, every time I try to prepare a keynote speech or something like that, it just, I, it just falls apart and I'm just like... <laughs> I just throw the papers and they flutter down. I go, let's start over. And then I just start talking because I feel like as much as I don't like it, I feel like the audience is least engaged because I'm vulnerable. Like they're getting the real me. I'm vulnerable. They don't know what I'm going to say. Or I should say, I don't know what I'm going to say next any more than they do. So it becomes an actual thing rather than a presentation. I don't like presentations. That's why I never did good in school. I don't like having stuff just presented to me. I wanna be an active part of a living learning experience. So it sounds like maybe over time, I just wanna see if I have it, maybe over time, the way you like to be pulled in by something, you feel more able to do that. So you feel more, like you're saying, writing more as a reader, like the way that you love to receive information, you feel like you can do that now more. Right, I understand the mechanism. I understand how the information is passed, how the little trail of crumbs is yeah. is left to create an expectation and, and how I can pull that carpet out from under them, but also offer a soft landing. So one last question. Um, do you keep, you were talking about, I've written two more books and a screenplay, but um, do you keep multiple books in your mind at the same time? Are you, do you have multiple books working themselves in your mind at the same time? Yeah, usually two, but like different parts, some, well, kind of three, because I'm usually at three different parts of the process. It doesn't, it's not as schizophrenic as it sounds. It's like, I'm not trying to 
composing the book is the hardest thing. That's the one that takes the most, the most of your self. But like, I'll be copy editing one book, maybe researching another book and then composing a third book. So it's not getting all mixed up in there yeah. in the mind. There are three different processes, and which is also another tool for productivity. You know, people like, you know, there's always work to be done. And if I have three projects, well, I can get some research done. I can get some copy editing done. You know, it takes a lot of energy, um, but I may not have time to to sit down and write a scene because I or full scenes. Yeah, that makes sense. So it helps me be productive. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been a great talk, Jonathan. Oh, thank you. I loved it. Thanks for listening to Between the Covers here on KBU Portland. 90.7 FM with musical help from John Bechtel. If you'd like to hear a longer version of this interview, head to kboo.org and thanks for listening. I love you, K Boo. Community Radio is a proud co sponsor of Portland Tackle Farm Fest. On Sunday, August 28th, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Triskley Farm in Westland. Portland Taiko blends traditional Japanese taiko drumming with dynamic choreography and storytelling. That's Portland Taiko Farm Fest on Sunday, August 28th, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Triskley Farm, 29700 Southwest Mountain Road in Westland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events.
Thank you.